Father God, we ask now that you will open our eyes. Father, unblock deaf ears, Lord, and let us celebrate uh, the truth that Jesus had, has made us see. Father, he is the divine eye-opener, and I pray that we will uh, see you clearly today. Open up our hearts, Father, unshackle our hands for praise, Father. Let us be joyful, Father. In the midst of being somber over sin and rejection, Lord, let us be jo- joyful over the salvation you have given. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. A teacher stands up in front of her class and spends 15 minutes lecturing her elementary students about basic multiplication. She writes numbers on the board and flies through multiplication tables. She sings multiplication jingles and the class repetitiously follows along. You've all been there, right? Uh, Sitting at the desk singing multiplication tables, right? If you haven't, then you haven't had kids in a long time. But here's the crucial question. How can the teacher know that her students truly understand the material? Merely asking the students, do you understand, proves nothing, does it? About whether they can actually grasp the principles of multiplication, whether they actually know how to move smoothly through the principles of math, to track the student's progress Utilizing an assessment is a must. Now, for those of you who have been teachers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that are not in the teaching world, assessment is a fancy word for testing the student's understanding and ability to apply what they've heard in class. Every student in the room may very well have heard the teacher's lecture about multiplication, but only an assessment will reveal whether or not they heard and understood. Can they apply the principles of multiplication when they're given different numbers? So they know that two times two equals four, but if they never, I I hope that's right. Somebody check my math, right? Okay. If they know, good, good, I memorized that part. They might know two times two equals four, but do they know the solution to three times three? You see, if they're never, never able to interchange these numbers and utilize multiplication in real life, then they've heard, but they've never really understood. So assessment's needed. Assessments are important not only in the classroom, but in everyday life. You parents know that lecturing your kids will do nothing unless you also understand also assess their understanding. You lecture them about responsibility. You tell them how important responsibility is. You want them to grow up to be responsible people, but only by assessing daily things do they show that they understand and produce responsibility. Do they feed the dog? Do they do the chores? Do they get to class on time? Do they text and drive? Do they do their basic homework? So it's not just that they conceptually hear and grasp the understanding of uh, the, the, the thought of responsibility, but they grasp it through understanding and then apply it and produce it. That matters. Assessment is no less needed in our relationship with Jesus. Matthew 13 begins a section on Jesus's parables. And the key question that these parables put forth is not just simply, have you heard what Jesus has said about the kingdom? No, the question instead is, have you understood what he has said about the kingdom? This understanding will then be proven through one bearing fruit and putting these kingdom truths into practice. It will reveal your heart. It will reveal your understanding The parables indicate whether a person has moved beyond just merely hearing Jesus' words, 
and moving to understanding and doing what he has taught. Just as they did for the Pharisees and the disciples, these parables will uncover our own response to the message of the kingdom. Now, if you've been tracking along in Matthew's gospel, you see that Jesus' ministry reveals a deep rift that divides all humanity. There are those who long for God's kingdom and those who do not. Those who accept the king and those who reject him. And and this deep rift comes in and this deep divide is here based on people's faith, their response. And so you get people like tax collectors, sinners, lepers, people that are undesirables, untouchables that come to Jesus and they accept him and receive him. And they are given a place at the table at, at, at the kingdom's feast. And yet you've got others like the Pharisees who choose to try to kill Jesus as a response to the message he preaches. Now, in their own view, the Pharisees would not have thought themselves as opponents of the kingdom. If anything, they would have thought themselves to be protectors of the kingdom. But they're not protectors of the kingdom. Their rejection of Jesus is showing this internal and ancient struggle between God and man. Whose kingdom is going to win out? It's not this dualistic power struggle. We know that God is king. And yet somehow man consistently thinks that his kingdom will stand in the face of God's. And so their rejection reveals this deep divide. Rather humble submission to the king or arrogant rejection of him. And that context serves as the launching of Jesus' parable discourse. The parables, and I, this was for me just to, to, to understand this, the parables are given in the context of humanity rejecting and accepting him here. He launches into these parables so that they will show, so that they will show who has responded to his kingdom rightly and who has rejected his kingdom altogether. Matthew 13 opens by saying, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables. Now the reference to Jesus leaving the house connects this passage with the previous passage where the Pharisees are speaking outrageous accusations against Jesus. Things like, He cast out demons through Beelzebul and the fact that his family had come to the house to speak to Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't tell you this, but Mark does. Jesus's mommy and brothers thought that he was out of his mind. So they had come to take him home. So it's in that context, in that house that Jesus leaves and then goes and stands in the boat and begins to give the parables. The first parable is a story about a sower and the soil in which he planted. A sower went out, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell along thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, and produce grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now here's the important phrase to pay attention to. He who has ears, let him hear. Now the explanation of what Jesus just meant by that parable will be explained later on in the chapter. But there's some other important front matter that we have to deal with first. 
For now we're going to hone in on this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus uses this theme of ears and hearing, eyes and seeing all through this passage. And so his main point is not just the parable itself, but his main point in Matthew 13 is whether or not the people that are hearing him are actually hearing him. In Matthew 13, he sees this crowd and he sees the few head nods. He sees the questionable uh, head scratching. He sees those of you who doze off. And he knows that everyone is hearing him. But he knows not everyone is hearing him. They hear Jesus' words. But do they hear Jesus? They hear God's word. But do they hear God? Many of them are spiritually deaf. They could probably hear and recite. They probably understood the context of the parables better than you and I do. And yet, did it really take root? My friends, the same danger exists for us today. You can come to church week after week and hear a pastor preach Jesus's words. You can open your Bible day after day and read Jesus's word in scripture. That does not mean that you hear Jesus. God's word is God's word, but it is God who spoke it and it is to God we must listen. The difference between hearing Jesus and hearing Jesus, really, truly hearing Jesus is infinitely important if we're to allow the kingdom to take root in our lives, we mustn't read and listen with hearts that have zoned out from hearing Jesus' voice in our lives. My friends, we in Western culture tend to be these people that once spiritual things begin to be talked about, we gaze over. We just kind of, it's just humming in our ears. It's just a subtle backdrop noise. We could, we could just as easily watch a football game while reading the Bible. We could just as easily uh, uh, say that we know Scripture and repeat Scripture without ever really truly understanding it. So it's of infinite importance that if we as the people of God are going to live in the kingdom and be kingdom citizens, that we don't just hear Jesus' words, but we hear Jesus. So that's the question that these par- parables are going to ask. Have you zoned out? Is Jesus' words just a mere humming in your ears? Having ears, do you not hear? Having eyes, do you not see? Having the seed, do you not bear fruit? And so we see the need for spiritual assessment is as important as ever. Merely having a preacher up here and talk for 40 minutes and say, do you understand? And getting the head nods does nothing. There needs to be a spiritual assessment. There needs to be something in our lives that we can look at and ask the question, do we show signs of hearing and understanding and bearing fruit? Now, Jesus's parable teaching to this day is still seen as a strange tactic. It was so strange that even Jesus's disciples pull him aside and say, "Uh, teacher, why do you speak to them in parables? Isn't the goal to make sense of what you're saying? Aren't you supposed to be clear? Aren't you supposed to list out all your positions in, in, in very clear writ so that all these people can clearly understand? So, so why are you talking to them in parables? Well, we need to define what we're talking about. What is a parable? 
Some people, especially you uh, people who have done literary studies in the past, may rightly see some allegorical elements in the parables. But the goal of a parable goes beyond a mere allegory. Allegories, riddles, fables, I mean, we have some fun with those things in our house. They're fun to try to decipher, trying to pick out what the meanings are, and what does this represent, and what does this mean? Um, I think of, uh, last year I read Animals Farm by George Orwell. That's a fun book to read, to try to figure out who's he talking about, who are these historical characters that he's got, and it's just fun to read, and, and to sit there trying to decipher the allegory. And then you've got Aesop's fables, right? Those are fun, right? Grimm's fairy tales. Those are all fun. But the parables are not allegories or fairy tales. Parables work more like Old Testament proverbs. In fact, the word parable is the same as the Hebrew word mashal, which is proverb. So what they are, they are truths that are embedded in stories or analogies that are meant to impact or reveal one's relationship with God. So you think about a fable. A fable is meant to seek moral development. You, you, you teach your kid this fable, maybe the rabbit gets eaten because he didn't listen to his parents. Okay, so the goal in that is listen to your parents or someone might cannibalistically eat you. Right, but fables just have that moral development in mind. Parables, on the other hand, are there to assess one's spiritual state. They're there to reveal your walk with God. They're not just seeking to implant moralistic teaching. They're there to reveal whether you already have the kingdom of God at work in your life. In this way, parables are an assessment of the soul. They reveal whether you have or have not have Jesus' words actually embedded themselves into your heart, had them open your ears, open your eyes so that now you can see, you can hear, and bask in the glory of the kingdom in your life. In these parables, Jesus will give many truths. And the question will be, do his hearers not only hear, but hear and understand, which in turn will be evidenced by their bearing fruit with the truth that he's speaking, the kingdom truth, clearly working in their lives. So for example, when we get to the parable of the hidden treasure, the question will be, have I found the hidden treasure that Jesus is speaking about? How do I know? In what ways am I detaching myself from other things in order to grab hold of and cling to that kingdom treasure. That's, a, that's an assessment that we have to undergo. And in doing so, it will reveal the state of our heart, whether or not we are clinging to other things or clinging to Christ. Jesus' answer to the disciples expresses the heart-revealing nature of his parabolic teaching. Just listen to his answer to them. Why do you speak in parables? Well, here's what he says. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now the word secrets can also mean mysteries. You go back to your Old Testament, you open up in Genesis, you see something like Genesis 3.15, where God says he's going to bring an offspring of the woman to crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. And the question is, is how's that kingdom going to come? What will it be like? Who will this person be? How will he crush the head of the serpent? Um, how will people respond? 
All of that remained a mystery all through the Old Testament. And people were coming up with their own expectations. They were trying to answer those questions. And so you had people, by and large, who expected in Jesus' day the Messiah to be this massive military leader who would defeat the Katim, the Romans, and drive them out of Israel, and who would bring this massive social upheaval and would reestablish the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus comes, and he reclines at table peacefully with sinners. He doesn't take up swords. He doesn't tell his people to to carry their, their shields or to throw spears. No, he, he comes and his plan of redemption is through death, not killing, but by dying, which in large part is why several chose to reject him. But the disciples are starting to see this unfolding mystery in Jesus. Little by little, they're beginning to see just who he is and what he has come to do and how it's going to come about. And Jesus is telling them And as we'll see in Matthew, Jesus comes out right and says, the son of man must suffer and die. He tells them God's plan, unfolds it for them. And before their very eyes, they see this ancient plan blossoming and coming to fruition until it's fully grown. And so they see things that nobody else sees. Now at this point, that sight is completely imperfect. They still expect Jesus, as we'll see, to call down fire on rebellious Samaritan villages to start the battle. Peter un- unsheathes his shield and lops off ears. Surely this is the way that we get Jesus to kick in the gear. And yet it's only through time with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, seeing their Savior march to the cross, die, be buried, and resurrect, that they see who he actually is and begin to see the fruition of God's plan. This knowledge was meant to grow. It wasn't something that they were just going to arrive at. It was something they were going to grow into. Jesus says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. My friends, we teach our children Bible truths as if we are handing down clothes that we know someday they will grow out of. I mean, think of the way we've told the story of Noah and the ark in the past, right? We put it on the nursery walls. Pretty soon, children grow up out of that whole Jesus built an animal rescue shelter mentality. The reality of the message of the kingdom is not something we grow out of. It is something we grow into. And the best news about it is as we are delivered into the kingdom, the truths that we have seen in Christ continue to grow. And every year you get older, every year you grow wiser, that year the biblical truths that Jesus has shown about his kingdom get bigger. Do you realize you never outgrow the kingdom? You never outgrow Jesus. You are always the small child and never the adult. You're always the student, never the schoolmaster. Jesus is the teacher. And every year you see him grow, every year you grow, so will he grow bigger before your eyes. The mature Christian isn't someone who has simplified these complex truths. The mature Christian isn't someone who all this is now mundane and simple knowledge. No, the mature Christian who knows just how magnificent and increasingly so these truths are. The best preachers that I've known, the most successful 
holy pastors. Now, I'm not talking about successful, meaning big churches. I'm talking about successful in a holy life are those who walk quietly and realize that every passing day they're going to learn something new about Jesus. And every day the kingdom's going to grow before their eyes. My friends, there's none of us that should be bragging about how much we know. We have some, and we're meant to have more. And then for those of us who continue to have more, we're meant to have an abundance. It is a growing up into the kingdom. Now contrast that with the Pharisees who rejected Jesus. They had very little knowledge of the kingdom. Sure, they, they had lots and lots of knowledge. They knew scripture inside and out better than you probably do. They, they understood uh, the Old Testament prophecies and, and some of the things that they didn't really understand as we see, but they knew God's word really well. And yet, even what they knew seems infinitely little to the knowledge of Christ. And that's what Jesus means when he says, even those who have a little, even what he has will be taken away. These Pharisees had this massive knowledge. I hesitate to call them theologians because true theologians try to get to the word of Christ. These did not. These were just mere book readers. One giant book club that talked about the Torah all the time. But even that massive wealth of knowledge that they had was taken away because it was infinitely small compared to what Jesus had come to teach. In their rejection of Jesus, they revealed their true ignorance. Now, according to Jesus, the parables reveal what is already true about a person's heart and confirm them in that state. This is going to be a hard teaching, so I hope you bear with me. Try to hear what I'm trying to say. Hear and understand, okay? And then don't throw fruit at me. So... Jesus says, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which we'll explain here in just a minute. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to go back to Isaiah 6, and read Isaiah 6 in its context. Isaiah is a book about Israel's infidelity, by and large. About their coming judgment, and then about the restoration through the second exodus. Okay? But in Isaiah 6, we, we all know Isaiah 6, 1, right? Whom shall I send, right? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here am I, send me. We all know that. But few of us have actually read God's next words, what he says to Isaiah next. Now imagine you've just volunteered for this prophetic mission. And in your mind are all these dreams of massive repentance, a mega church in Jerusalem, and all these people teaching you as a Bible guru. And so you're, you're just thinking, man, this is going to be amazing. And then God says, okay, go. And say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. He tells them right out the gate, your one and only job is to speak so they don't hear to do things so that they don't see. That's, a, that's massively confusing to a Bible exegete. Isaiah's ministry 
is there to confirm and solidify Israel in their already happening rejection. This seems strange to us. Why would God send a prophet whose job it would be to keep the people from hearing and seeing and whose ministry, and you can read this in Isaiah 6, would make the hearts of this people dull? Now, I want to be clear. It's not that God is causing his people to sin here. We know from the book of James that God tempts no one to sin, right? God doesn't bring people to sin. However, God does hand people over to their own devices and desires. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, all get what they want. They do not always like it. The people had already rejected God and pursued their idols. With their spiritual infidelity and rebellion, they had already willingly covered their eyes and blocked their ears. And so God gave them what they wanted. You hear that in Romans. God handed them over. God gave them up to their own passions and desires. My friends, this is biblical language, and it might be tough for us to swallow, but he made them spiritually blind and deaf. They did not want to see. They covered their eyes. They did not want to hear. They blocked their ears. And so what did he do? He made them what they wanted, blind and deaf. Isaiah's ministry then served to harden the already sinfully callous hearts of his people. Well, Jesus' parables work to the same end. To be sure, hardening hearts is not the only thing that the parables do, right? We'll see later that they do something else. For example, in Matthew 13, 34 through 35, they also serve as a proof of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament scripture. They also give truth to those who believe in him. But in this text, for now, we're honing in on the fact that these parables confirm people in their hard-hearted rejection. The people hear, but never understand. They see, but never perceive, and their hearts have grown dull. And so Jesus' parables confirm that blindness and deafness. Once again, this is what the people already wanted. He's not, giving, he's not forcing them in this direction. He's giving them up to go where they want to go. That might seem strange to us. That might seem dangerous to us. But the reality is, is all get what they want in the end. They do not always like it. These parables assess their listeners, whether they are blind or seeing, deaf or hearing. They don't, they don't just, oh, they're not there just to give truth. They're there to see whether the truth is actually in their lives. It either conceals truth or it uncovers truth. And so we see that Jesus, in the very awkward honesty of Matthew's gospel, not only opens eyes, not only opens ears and gives understanding, his teaching also blinds those who refuse to see, deafens those who refuse to hear, and takes understanding from the hard-hearted. That's a sour truth for us to hear. We like a Jesus who opens eyes, not so much the Jesus who might blind eyes. And yet we have to wrestle with the text. In Jesus' own word, if we're to say, that's not, that's not so, that's not the way it is. Jesus is saying, this is the way it is. Explain it differently if it means something different. But it, according to the words that are here, careful study, Jesus blinds eyes. And he also opens eyes. He does both. He's not just some good guru up in the sky giving people great blessings and never confirming people in their own sin. Jesus is not a tame God. 
He does things that leaves you scratching your head. He is not, he does not fit into our little boxes. Every sinful heart is naturally blind. Every sinful heart is naturally deaf. And my friends, I think we've got to swallow this truth. God owes grace to no one. God owes grace to no one. All are naturally deaf, dumb, and blind. All. So instead of us asking, why would he blind some eyes? I think it's more appropriate to ask, why would he open anyone's eyes? Instead of us asking, why would he block up deaf ears, the hard-hearted deaf ears, which seems, that, that just seems just to me. If they want to go a certain way, I mean, it makes sense in the justice of God that he could, by right, say, fine, have your sin and reap the consequences. He could say that as a just God. But as it is, a gracious God comes in and opens some eyes, not just some eyes, many eyes. He opens up some ears, and not just some ears, many ears. So instead of us being offended, like, whoa, Jesus blinds some eyes, Jesus blocks some ears, we should say, why did Jesus open my blind eyes? Why did Jesus open my deaf ears? It stirs up this wonder and affection for Jesus that makes you the one to fall into his love. Because in his great love, he loved you though you were blind. He loved you though you could not hear. He spoke and your ears opened. He spoke and your eyes saw. And that is the power of Jesus. He says to the disciples, but blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Now Jesus isn't saying, but you, you are elite. You understand none of these other things that none of these other jokers understand. You have had the ability to open your own eyes. Blessed are you. Good job. You see things no one else can see. Jesus didn't say that. Who blesses people? How do people get blessed? That's That's a worthy question to ask. Some scholars would call this a divine passive. If we're asking the question, well, their eyes are blessed, but blessed by who? Who has blessed their eyes? Have they blessed their own eyes? Well, no, we know from Scripture nobody does that. So it must be God who has blessed their eyes. And if God who has blessed their eyes, then they owe it to God. The the praise and the credit for their open eyes and their open ears belongs to God alone. He is the divine eye-opener. He unstops deaf ears. Why would he do that? I have no idea. To bring himself glory and to show you love. That's the only answers I can give. Other than that, I don't know why. Because I still haven't been able to confirm that Jesus made the right choice with me. I'm still in his debt of grace. He would have been completely just. But as it is, he opens eyes of some, many. Opens ears of some, and many. And here's the sad part. As is true with us, the disciples could hardly fathom just the depth and the glory of this blessing. Jesus says that people of old long to see and hear what they are seeing and hearing. He says this. He says, for truly I say to you, many prophets long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. My friends, can you think of that? Moses. 
walked into the tabernacle, filled with the Shekinah glory of God, sees God come down in the tabernacle, fills the tent so that not even Moses can go in and fill it. And he longed to see the face of Jesus like you do in knowing the gospel. He wanted what you have in Jesus. David wanted to see Jesus come into Jerusalem. David wanted to know what the name of his son would be and who would be king and forever king. And he pointed forward to his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand. Who is that? We know him. David didn't. Isaiah wrestled with this suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and would die for the sins of man. And who was it? And when would he come? And First Peter tells us that these prophets wrestled with who it would be and who would bear the Spirit of Christ in them and who would be the Savior who would die and suffer for humanity. And we know his name. We know about his life. We know he died, just like Isaiah said he would. We also know he raised from the grave, just like David said he would. And now we know that he has ascended at the right hand and that he's coming back just as he said he would. And one day all this blurry sight that we have will be replaced with transparent, clear, perfect sight. And we will see him face to face. My friends, you have something all the world has waited to see. The words of Jesus is something all the world has always needed to hear forever and ever and ever. And you have it. It's not spiritual elitism. It's infinite elite grace. Ah, But we're bored with church, right? Reading the Bible is boring, right? We can't sit for an hour and look into these mysteries that God has revealed in Jesus because it just uh, doesn't do anything for me. My friends, by God's grace, you have sight that few others have had in all history. Because of Jesus, you hear things that few others in all the world have been able to hear, who even wanted to hear. Let us not take it for granted what we have. In Jesus. Now the question remains. That was just the first half of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. The question remains, how do I know whether I am one who sees and hears? We can actually deal with the parable of the sower pretty quickly now that we understand what Jesus is doing. Because his point is very simple. The parable actually fits into that bigger point of what he's doing with the parables. He uh, tells the parable a second time. He doesn't tell the people, he doesn't tell his disciples who the sower is because he didn't need to. In the Old Testament, God is always the sower, the gardener, the planter, the, the uh, laborer in the field. He's the one who is, is, is making for himself a vineyard. Okay, But he does tell us a little bit more about the soil. He gives us four soils. There's the path, the rocky soil, the thorny ground, and the good soil. And as was common in those days, when you plant seeds by hand, you just throw them out there. Okay, That's what, that's what he's imaging. is a sower casting out seeds, and it lands in all these different kinds of soil. The seed, he says, is the word of the kingdom. Now, I think it's worth paying attention here. In all of these soils, all of them hear the message of the kingdom. 
Do you hear that? All of them hear the message of the kingdom, but only one bears fruit. So if your hope is in just hearing the message, this parable says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not just hearing, it's hearing, understanding, and bearing fruit. And we'll get to that here in a minute. The first soil is on the path. The seed is sown. The person hears the word, but they do not understand it. And before it even is able to break ground, the birds come, who Jesus says is the evil one. They come and they snatch it away, uh, what has been sown into the heart. For some, the word is devoured before it even has a chance to take root. It never stood a chance of bearing fruit. And in this, I think we can, we can see the Pharisees kind of fitting into this category, who barely hear a word of Jesus, and immediately they're angry and they're mad, and they turn it, they see, they see Jesus casting out demons, and immediately he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. It's snatched away before it ever gets a chance to take root. And then you have examples of Pharisees like Nicodemus, who the seed continues to grow. And so you see that division happening here. I think it could also fit the crowds who initially asked the question, could this be the son of David? And yet none of them accept him as the son of David. The seed sown, there's the question, could this be the son of David? Snatched away, no, surely not him. The second soil is that on rocky ground. The seed is sown, the person hears the word, and immediately it receives with joy. These are those people that you share the gospel with, and up to this point we would be celebrating because they have assented to the message of the kingdom. They have agreed this is not such bad news. And at least initially, they're more excited about it than you are. They show promise. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As quickly as the person receives the word, he just as quickly falls away. Now, I, I know Jesus is making a different point in this parable, but I just want to stop here and just make an application for our church. We should be clear about the hardships of discipleship, right? I hope you're not here because our church has communicated that following Jesus is easy. Yes, Jesus' burden is easy, right? Yes, it's light, but he still calls you to carry a cross. My friends, we're seeing a phenomenon that has left many of us scratching our heads. How is it that people can hear this great message, right, and walk away from the church? Why are people leaving the church in groves, in droves? And, and, and then solutions come, like maybe we need to simplify it, maybe we need to make it easier for them, maybe we need to water down some of the truth so that they can swallow it better, let's sweeten it up some. I'm going to turn your paradigm upside down. People are not leaving the church because the church hasn't made it easy enough. People are leaving the church because we've made it too easy. We have simply not prepared people for hardship. How many times in our our testimonies do we say things like, my life has been great ever since I believed in Jesus? Let's just dissect that for a moment. You've never had a tough time since believing in Jesus? You've never felt like you were being crucified for following Jesus? I mean, that's how Jesus describes discipleship. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's how it feels. And we've got to be honest with people. Young people, listen. Following Jesus is tough. It will get worse for you in your life. It may mean losing a job, having not as much money. It may mean people not liking you as enough. But guess what? It's worth it. So when it comes, 
don't fall away. My friends, as a church, we don't need to make things easy. We don't need to make the ground more shallow than it already is. We need to plant seeds deep. I'm not saying shoot over people's heads, but I am saying go for the root. We need people who would be able to stand with the truth that they have been given in this church and be able to withstand things like fiery trials and persecution and the death of a loved one and cancer and all these things. Why else do we see so many believers flatten the moment they get cancer? Flatten the moment that hardship comes. They lose a job and immediately, I just question this whole Jesus thing. My friends, that's the failure of the church to not plant deep seeds. We're not going to make it more shallow. We're not going to emphasize the temporal blessings, the prosperity and the happiness, and oh, your life will sound just like a perfect melody. No, my friends, the ease in the Christian walk is that we have peace with God. That eases lots. That eases everything. We have peace with God. But my friends, to live as a friend of God in this world that's had enmity with God is incredibly difficult and hard. So let the roots grow deep. The third soil is that of thorny ground. The seed is sown, the person hears the word of the kingdom, but the cares of the world, the anxieties and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. One thinks of the rich young man who desired eternal life. He had heard Jesus teaching. He knew to come to the good teacher, right? Even though he didn't know quite what that meant. And then when Jesus said, well, sell all that you have and follow me. Jesus knew that this man, his heart of hearts, did not truly want to follow him. Did not truly want eternal life that much because he could not give up his grasp on all these temporal things. And so he walked away sad because he could not give up that which was fleeting for that which was eternal and forever. Both anxiety and abundance draw our eyes away from Jesus, and these things tend, in the end, to choke out the word in people. Now, these three souls are all examples of people who have heard the word. So if you have heard the word, you can raise your hand. That is everybody that has heard the gospel ever, they have heard the word. But that does not mean it will bear fruit. That is not the goal. Just getting people to hear the word is not the goal. Because hearing doesn't do much in and of itself. One commentator says that these three things show that, that even this, this apparently experienced sower, even he, right? It's, it's not because of his lack of ability or anything. But even he doesn't force these seeds to grow. He casts the seeds and they grow in these soils that they already are. Satan, suffering, and stuff. The the, the hard heart, the path, the shallow heart, the rocky soil, and the strangled heart, the the thorny soil, all work together here to choke out the word inside of people. And yet the common denominator is that they all hear and are unfruitful. These three are offset by the one good soil. And this is where we get to the encouragement in the message. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Now for Jesus, if you want to know whether you truly hear Jesus, not just Jesus' words, you will hear, you will understand, and you will bear fruit. 
What does that mean? That means that these truths will begin to take root in your life. So to ask the question, how do I know whether I am one who sees and hears? Simply ask yourself, when I hear the word, do I understand what it is saying to me? And then do I do it? Do I do it? When the Bible tells me to love my neighbor, and I hear that, do I ask all these qualifications? Well, well, do I have to love this guy or that guy? Or surely you don't mean this. Surely we don't need to do that. Or do we do it and bear fruit by loving our neighbor, whoever happens to be around us and to be considered a neighbor? When the Bible commands us to share the gospel, do we give all these qualifications for why we can't and fail to do it? So my friends, the simple question to you as disciples is, do you bear fruit? What fruit is in your life to show that the, the seed of the kingdom has taken root in your life? Now, you might be saying, well, I, I see some. I see some. If you don't see any, that's, that's a problem and one that you should assess and should take that assessment very seriously. But what if you see some? Well, you know, pastor, it's only a little bit. Praise God. A little fruit is something that Jesus celebrates. Do you notice what he says here? He doesn't say, and it goes on to bear a hundredfold. No, he just says, it goes on to bear a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. You know what? Jesus celebrates the 30 as much as he celebrates the hundred. You increasingly learning how to love your wife in small ways is just as faithful in producing fruit as learning to love people that you would have never talked about, talked to in your life. My friends, don't neglect the small fruits in your life. Seek and ask God to increase them, to bear more fruit. But celebrate the fact that Jesus is bearing fruit in our lives. Capitalize on that. Be fruitful people. Start in small ways. Yield your 30. And then ask God to turn it to 60. And then ask God to turn it to 100-fold. And next thing you know, you're not just tolerating your wife. You're now listening to your wife and helping your wife and loving your wife. And then you're dying for your wife. And you grow and you increase and the fruits abound as the life goes on. My friends, we should see ourselves as people who grow increasingly more fruitful as every day passes. We've been in deep discussions about loving our neighbor. We've been in deep discussions about how to help our community, how to be missional people. The question is never, do I love people, right? That's, that's, that's not the primary question. It's how can we love people more? How can we be more abundant? If we're afraid to ask the question of how we can be more faithful, that reveals something about our hearts, as if we're just content with this little bit of fruit that we can give Jesus. Instead of wanting to be fruitful all over, fruitful everywhere. We want people everywhere to see the fruit of God in our lives. And so we ask God to bear fruit in us. We ask him to open our eyes. We celebrate the small fruits. We celebrate the 30-fold. And we pray that God will make us 100-fold as we continue to grow in him. Let's pray. Father God, as, uh, as much as I long to create understanding in this room, Father, I know that even myself did not make myself understand you or the gospel. God, I pray that people will hear, that people will understand, and that they will bear fruit. You are the good sower who has sown the seeds in the lives of these sweet and dear people. Now, Father, I pray, Lord, 
that you will make it fruitful and abundant. I pray, Lord, that as this church continues to grow together in discipleship, that we will see ourselves super abundant in the fruit that you have caused in us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.